Great, let me pray for God's help. Father God, help us now to see Jesus. Help us now to worship Jesus. Pray amongst maybe for some familiarity that we may see wonderful truth in your word. It may change us. We pray for some faith. These are brand new words, Lord, that this would be wonderful truth which would change us. Help us now. Amen. When someone asks you to explain what happened on the cross, I wonder what you'd say. Uh, I imagine a really simple way of explaining it could be on the cross we see Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. That's true, completely true. You'd be right to say that. But I think there's more to say, isn't there? There's more richness to mine here as we dive into Easter story. Um, We're going to look at Passover in a minute. And just as the Israelites celebrated Passover once a year and remembered what had gone on, so we each year dive into the Easter story, focus right in on what happened and why. Uh, My prayer is we'd we'd chew on it, we'd mull on it, we'd meditate on it. That we'd, we'd, we'd get rich truth from this as we maybe look at it in depth for the first time in a year or first time ever. We'd see wonderful truth here. So we're going to try and do that. We're going to look a bit more in depth. But what does it mean that Jesus died for me? We're going to expand on that. And the way we're going to do that here in the Last Supper is we're going to let Jesus explain what's happening. I think that's quite a good thing to do. We, we talk a lot in our culture now about our truth, my truth. I've got truth. You don't, but Jesus here does. And he's going to explain exactly what happens uh, and what is going to happen the next day as he dies on the cross. So it's worth us listening up to. I think Jesus has got a real authority to say what happened on the cross. As Helder said, at uh, the end of our time together, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's inaugurated here at the Last Supper. We're going to celebrate it all together. We've done that probably over 100 times since town church began. Uh, It's a bit odd, isn't it? If you think about it, it's a bit weird. Uh, I'm sure most of us have been to funerals, memorial services. They're often pretty sad occasions. My granddad's funeral sticks in my mind last year. I can still see and hear some vivid details from it. It's like that, those sort of pivotal days, isn't it? You remember specific things. Now imagine us as a family repeating that again and again and again and again, remembering the death of my granddad, remembering whoever is in your mind. But more than that, remembering how he died. It's odd, it's bizarre. But what this does show us here is if we had any doubt what the main point of Jesus' life was, what is so central to the Christian faith, it is the death of Jesus. Because this, the Lord's Supper we're going to celebrate later, is the only regular act authorised by Jesus to remember him, to commemorate him. And it's all around his death. It was by his death that he wished to be remembered. So if the cross, if Jesus' death is not central to our faith, then it's not the faith of Jesus. So it's well worth our time as we do it over the next few weeks, diving into the cross, thinking about it afresh, thinking about it from different angles. So let's focus in. We're going to expand this wonderful truth of Jesus died for me. Five sort of expansions. Um, just to warn you, they go from shorter to longer. So hopefully we'll be at number four relatively quickly and then we'll spend most time in number five. But we're going to expand Jesus died for me. And firstly, we're going to see Jesus died in my place for me. I don't know if you noticed, as Josh read, uh, in those first few verses, it says three times that this happened at Passover. Um, 
verse 17. Where do you want us to make preparation? You eat the Passover, verse 18. I'm going to celebrate the Passover, verse 19. The disciples uh, directed and prepared the Passover. Um, I'm pretty sure Matthew wants us to get that this happened at Passover. Uh, What was Passover? Well, um, it was the annual festival the Jewish people had to remember what God did when he delivered the Jews out of slavery in Egypt. And if you know the story, you may have seen the film. Uh, it's a great film. What's it called? The one with Moses in it. Prince of Egypt. Super film. Super film. I'm told I look a little bit like Moses. If you want to look that up later. Um, but I wonder if you know the story. That's an aside. That's not here. Uh, that's an aside. Do you know the story? It's the 10th plague. The 10th plague on the Egyptians was the death of every firstborn male human or animal. But God, amazingly, made a way for the Israelites to be saved from this. All they needed to do was kill a lamb, sprinkle its blood on the doorpost, on the lintel on the doorposts, in order to let God know to pass over the house. If they did that, they were saved. And then they fled Egypt. So what happened at Passover, ultimately, <laughs> um, we don't have this every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but a lamb, a lamb died in the place of the people. That's what happened at Passover. And as Jesus sat down and ate his last meal with the disciples in this upper room, they would have been reclining around the table eating. They would have eaten a lamb. God deliberately planned for Jesus to die. We saw that last week, didn't we? He's in total control here. It's no accident. And he deliberately planned for him to die at Passover. We see the emphasis, as I said, three times in three verses. So the Jewish festival around God's deliverance centred on the death of a lamb in the place of the people is now going to be replaced by a new festival centred around the death of a new lamb in the place of the people. John, in his gospel, makes this so plain. As John the Baptist first sees Jesus, remember his words, he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus dies in the place of sinners, in the place of me, in the place of you. Because the Bible says, doesn't it, we deserve the just punishment of death for not following and trusting in God. Instead of us taking the punishment we deserve, Jesus dies in our place. He takes the judgment and God passes over us. Not because of anything we've done. See, the Jews, at the first Passover, they did nothing. All they did was trust in the blood of a lamb. They had to put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. That's all they did. They trusted in the blood of a lamb. It must have been a nerve-wracking moment. They trusted in the blood of a lamb. They trusted God would pass over their houses if they put the lamb's blood on their door. And for us, it's the same. The call to trust that Jesus' death is done in our place. So God will pass over us. I'm going to say this a few times on each point. Praise God with me for this. Just stop now. Don't just listen to me. Let it affect us. Let it cause us to worship. Praise God with me for this. God has made it possible. Because he passes over us through the blood of Jesus. So that's the first thing we see. Jesus died as the lamb in my place. Secondly, we see Jesus was betrayed for me. We saw it a bit last week. We'll see more of Judas' story in future weeks. But we see it here with this sort of interesting conversation which goes on. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They would have looked round at each other going, surely not me. Surely not me, Jesus. And then we get this only time it's mentioned in Matthew. Judas himself says to Jesus, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus says, you have said so. Obviously, Judas, it seems, the commentators say, was sitting right next to Jesus in the place of real favour. What love Jesus had for Judas. But it is significant that 
Jesus was betrayed. We'll see why in weeks to come, but maybe have a think of this next week. Mullinet, why was it important that Jesus was betrayed? As we said, everything about his death happened according to God's plan, even his betrayal. The most spectacular sin that's ever been committed in the history of the world is the brutal murder of Jesus, the morally perfect, infinitely worthy divine son of God. And probably the most despicable act in the process of his murder was this betrayal by one of his closest friends. Imagine how it would have felt for Jesus. I think I don't ponder this. We were praying for church. I was going, my, my prayer is that some of these details, we go, yeah, Jesus was betrayed. Sure, great. Get that done. That next. <laughs> ponder this, what it would have felt like for Jesus. I think I sometimes imagine he wouldn't have felt it because he knew it was happening. Come on, Jesus. He, God, he knew it was going to happen. Bothered. But there's no indication ever that Jesus didn't feel as we feel as humans. Just because Jesus had planned to die, it wasn't, not painful or utterly agonising for it, how it happened. Pete's going to speak to us next week on Gethsemane. We see that. So let's not get comfortable with this. As we said at the start, we can be really over-familiar with the story. We may have heard Jesus died on the cross thousands of times. Our, our culture, whether they believe it or not, know it's significant to Christians. We get overly familiar with it. But Jesus, our saviour, our, our God, our friend, if you trust in him, was betrayed going to sing our final song which puts us in that place without christ we would betray him we're not like the other disciples in this story they don't kind of great thing we're like judas there's loads more to say on here Uh, others will pick it up but we need to not forget that jesus was betrayed here he would have felt it jesus would have felt the pain of rejection and betrayal maybe for you that's a comfort if you've ever felt that betrayal yourself in a relationship Because Jesus knows what it's like. So that's the second thing, just to continue to expand our understanding of what it means that Jesus died for me. Jesus was betrayed to death for me. Thirdly, Jesus was betrayed and broken for me. Let's focus on Jesus' words. As we said, he'll tell us what his crucifixion is doing. And his words are shocking. They're, again, a bit bizarre. They would have been bizarre for the disciples. We're so familiar with them. It would have been bizarre This wasn't normal for anyone in the Jewish culture to say this. He says this, while they're eating, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks. That's normal. They would have got that. That would have happened at the Passover. Broke it and gave it to disciples. Again, relatively normal. That would have happened at the Passover. And then he says, take and eat. Again, normal. That would have happened at the Passover. This is my body. You're what? As we think that's normal because we've heard it hundreds of times. Maybe that's so not normal. It sounds like cannibalism. And the disciples probably would have been sitting around the table going, what? Just looking at each other going, this is nuts. It's important. And I think they would have got there to see that Jesus speaking symbolically. Of course he is. They've heard him speaking this way before. They would have taken a beat and gone, what? And they gone, okay, this is, this, yeah, there's something deeper meaning here. Church history has debated this phrase. Church has split down the middle on it sometimes. But, it, but it's clear Jesus is speaking figuratively as he stands up here the night before his death and says, this is my body. He's reenacting what's going to happen in less than 24 hours time. You see, he would have taken the bread. Here it is. It would have been a flatbread like this, unleavened maybe. And he would have, he would have torn it limb for limb, ligament from ligament is what he's imagining is going on here. His body, this is Jesus' body, 
slowly ripped and torn and broken. Jesus is is looking towards what's going to happen in a few hours. Torn, broken. Jesus, the perfect, spotless, blameless Jesus. Him who died in our place was ripped and was torn for you. His body was broken for you. It wasn't painless. It wasn't quick. It was slow. It was agonising. It was agony. A few years ago, as a church, we spent Good Friday watching Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. A famous film reviewer, not a Christian, a guy called Roger Ebert says this. He says, it's the most violent film I've ever seen. It's clear that Mel Gibson wanted to make graphic and inescapable the price that Jesus paid when he died for our sins. You must be prepared for whippings, flayings, beatings, the crunch of bones, the agony of screams, the cruelty of the sadistic centurions, the rivulets of blood that crisscross every inch of Jesus' body. It's a film about an idea, an idea that it is necessary to fully comprehend the passion if Christianity is to make any sense. Now, I'm not saying that film was for everyone. I'd say I found it incredibly helpful just to consider afresh and worship as so I went through what our Lord Jesus went through. Even, it's just a microcosm of understanding it. And as Jesus takes the bread and says, take, eat, this is my body. He's demonstrating what's about to happen. Maybe in the disciples' minds, there would have been Jesus' words, which he said about himself in John 6. They probably hadn't grasped them yet then, but maybe they still don't do now. But they said here, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Referencing manna in the, in the desert. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. The broken body of Jesus is vital for us. Without it, without his sacrificial death on the cross, we would die of spiritual hunger just as we would without bread. As I said, we're going to come to the Lord's table in a few minutes. And and as we come to the Lord's table, we come as as needy, empty, dependent creatures. We are desperately in need of a meal from heaven to satisfy us, to strengthen us for the days ahead. That's how our hearts are to be as we come to the Lord's table. I wonder if that's how we come to the Lord's Supper. Needy, dependent, expectant that this meal will satisfy us. Of course, it's not going to satisfy us physically. It's a shot glass and a bit of bread. But spiritually... This is the gift of the Lord's Supper to us. We're going to see more why it's such a gift in a minute. Jesus' body broken for us. We remember his painful sacrifice. We remember what it has wonderfully achieved for all those who eat in faith. As Jesus said, life, eternal life. That's the third thing we see. Jesus was betrayed and broken for me. Fifthly, we expand it. Jesus was betrayed broken and poured out for the forgiveness of my sins. Jesus then took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
I wonder if you remember our series in Leviticus, if you're here, uh, a year and a half ago, we looked at the Old Testament sacrifice, which were a foretaste of this sacrifice. And you may remember they were incredibly bloody affairs. We see in the sacrifices, God accepted blood as an act of atonement, as a way of making the people right with God. Throughout the Bible, blood represents life and the spilling of shedding of blood in turn depicts death. Because the just penalty of human sin against God is death. The death of animal sacrifices through the giving of their blood stood in temporarily for the requirement of death for sinners. Yet we saw this in Leviticus, didn't we? The high priest had to return year after year after year after year. Repeatedly, Hebrews tells us, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The repeated animal sacrifices of the Old Testament were just delaying the inevitable. One day, a final reckoning for sin must come. And here in the Last Supper, we're 12 hours from it. Jesus' blood running down his face from the crown of thorns, dripping from his hands and his feet, gushing out of his side, leaking out of his wounded, whipped back, was shed for you and shed for me. And here we are told his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus' blood poured out. For the forgiveness of our sins. We can't forgive ourselves. Only the wrong person can ever forgive you, can't they? I I couldn't walk up to Lang, slap him and then say, don't worry, I forgive you. Our offence is against God. Our rebellion, our sticking two fingers up to him, saying I'll do life as I want, is against God who made us in relationship with him. But this is where we can marvel again and delight at this, where the right punishment is death, seen here in the blood, blood representing death. Jesus took that death for us. He bled so we don't have to. Maybe this helps you. Think about how precious God must find you. He must find us to be willing to go through this for us. Think about how precious and let those thoughts lead to praise. Jesus was betrayed, broken and poured out for the forgiveness of my sins. That's tiny. All the best in a minute. Finally, I'm not going to on a slide. Jesus was betrayed, broken, and poured out the forgiveness of the sins of a new covenant people. Jesus was betrayed, broken, and poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of a new covenant people. Now, I want to spend most of our time here because it's, it's crucial, but often overlooked as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Do you notice Jesus' words here? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't just forgive our sins. It's not just forgiveness given, but a totally new relationship beginning here. And it's not just for us individually, it's for a people. He establishes a relationship, as has been his goal for all time, with a people. And this relationship is, it says here, a covenant, it's covenantal. 
Only twice in the Old Testament do the words blood and covenant come together. And we see it come together again here. So so naturally, as Jesus says this slightly odd phrase, we often skip over it. We don't really understand it. I know I haven't really dug into it this week when we celebrate communion. This is my blood of the covenant. We need to look at what it means. As I said, we don't really think or talk about covenants much now, but they're, they're crucial for understanding the Bible. The closest we have now is, is maybe a picture in marriage. Here's a definition. A covenant is a relationship-forming promise. A relationship-forming promise. In marriage, you say vows, you receive rings, and you're married. It's a relationship-forming promise. In the Old Testament, God formed a covenant with his people. He first made a covenant with Abraham, promising blessing upon blessing upon blessing and abundance and life. This was renewed on Mount Sinai after God rescued Israel from Egypt. And it was here that it was ratified by the blood of a sacrifice. Covenants were formed by blood. Thankfully, marriage ceremonies aren't today. And in Exodus 24, you're not going to be able to read that, but we read this. Exodus 24, if you're following along. Moses got up early the next morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood, put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. (coughs) Then he took the book of the covenant, read it to the people and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of a covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You notice that the blood was thrown on the people. Uh, this blood would have been from a number of bulls. That's a, that's a lot of blood. It would have been put into bowls. Think massive dishes. It would have been thrown, sprinkled on the people. If you want to feel it later, when we have a little shot glasses, just chuck it on the person next to you. It will give you a little bit of feeling what it was like in Exodus at this time. Covenant forming was bloody. And the covenant was utterly key to Israel. It dominated their religion, this relationship, this, this promised relationship between God and them. But the tragedy is Israel did not keep the covenant. They did not keep their side of the bargain. Did you notice how as part of the covenant ceremony, they read the law? They agreed to do everything the law said they should do. But just flick through the Old Testament, they didn't. And so they forfeited the blessing. And the story of Israel is pretty bleak. Then eventually, after bleakness and bleakness and bleakness, we come to Jeremiah 31. Again, it'll be too small. That's not even readable. It's worth trying to flick to Jeremiah 31, if you can. If you're in the Red Bibles, it's page 794. If you're on a phone, you've got a head start. Because here in Jeremiah 31, this is about 600 years before Jesus The prophet Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And I want you to listen carefully. Listen carefully as I read these words about this new covenant and see if you can see what's missing. He says this about the new covenant. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord. It's verse 31. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You know what was missing? From a covenant? It's a glaring omission. There's no blood. That's because 600 years later, Jesus provides the blood. Not, not a bull, not an animal. That can't satisfy, we saw that, but the perfect, blameless son of God. What Jesus said here in the upper room was incredibly bold. The disciples would have been, they would have known their Jewish history. Because what he's saying here, Jesus is saying that his death, his death is central to the relationship now between God and his people. It would be the way that sins were cleansed and it would be the start of new life for God's people. I wonder if you've still got your finger in Jeremiah. Do you notice what Jeremiah said? That this covenant would not be based on how well the people kept it. It would be based on God's forgiveness. You see, the old covenant, we saw it a bit in Galatians, we looked at the law, uh, has three main weaknesses. Change through Jesus. We, we saw this in Galatians. The law was primarily an external thing. Ultimately, it accused people as it showed them where they got it wrong. But we see here in Jeremiah, wonderfully, it says we now have a new law written on our hearts by the Spirit. We can live in obedience to God because he lives in us and helps us. We have the Spirit in us if you trust in Christ. In the Old Testament, the people would say, they, they'd never say, sorry, they knew God. They'd never say they knew God. They could only know God through a priest or a prophet. If you remember from Leviticus, we, we talked about how they would have been so distant from where God was. God's inside us now. Now we don't just know about God, but we can know God. Again, stop and worship with me at that. We can know God. We take that for granted. I know I do. Thirdly, the old covenant could not adequately forgive sins. The animals didn't work. Hebrews tells us that. But here we have our sins forgiven and forgotten once and for all. From Jeremiah, we waited 600 years until this Galilean carpenter dared to say, that this covenant that Jeremiah spoke about, the forgiveness of sins promised, is about to come, and it's about to come through my death. Bold. It's true. A new relationship between us and God is established. And now the, the wonderful truth is we can now live, if you're seeing this room, you can live as forgiven people. Guilt taken away. We can live in a proper relationship, not one like the Israelites had where they had to keep their distance, only seeing God through a priest, even then, very rarely. No. Friends, we can be truly forgiven and we can truly know God. Again, stop. Worship with me on that. Little us in Bista, we can know and be known by God. Now, finally, as we draw in, what does this mean then for celebrating the Lord's Supper in a minute for us? Firstly, we need to apply this personally. 
personally, maybe the right word, to, together corporately as well. As we've seen, it's a, it's a meal for all of us. We, as, as Jesus dramatised his death, the people in the room were participants in it. They, they couldn't just watch him break bread and drink wine. They needed to share in it, take, eat. It was, it was a meal of sharing. They were in it together. He called on them to eat and drink. So when we eat and drink, these are, these are still a really vivid, acted parable for us. Action is necessary on our part. If you know any of the history of the Reformation, things like that, it used to be the priest just at the front of a church used to take the wine and the bread on behalf of the people. That is inherently wrong. It's everything against the gospel. Action is necessary on our part. He died for us, but we need to receive it by faith. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, do. This God who, who knows us, who loves us, who can forgive us of our sins, he longs for that relationship. So much he's willing to die for it. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, do. Take, eat. Maybe for the first time you can do that. You can take and eat the bread and the wine in a minute. For the Christian, if you've been in this room in a while, you've been trusting in Jesus, let the Lord's Supper give you rich peace and assurance. Do you struggle with ongoing feelings of guilt, of shame? As you take the Lord's Supper, let it preach to you. Let, let it remind you that our Lord's body was broken for you. That his blood was shed for you once and for all, all sins. All of your sins, past, present and future. There's nowhere else we can go with our sin. But if we, if we hide in Jesus, if we, we come to Jesus... He provides total cleansing through his blood. And when that happens, all God's promises become ours as we believe in them and we receive them. Amazingly, by God's grace, our sin has been dealt with. It's been dealt with as we trust in the Lord Jesus. In his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, a new relationship is formed. When we, we take communion, we're asking God to forgive our sins through the blood of Jesus. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember his words around the covenant. It's as if we were there in the upper room at the Lord's Last Supper. It's as if Jesus is renewing that covenant with us. It's as if he's signing it afresh with his blood like a signature on a contract as we drink the wine. And this can lead to real assurance and peace. It's a wonderful gift, communion. It's a wonderful physical gift. It's important. Think how this maybe works in marriage. If you're married and you say to your spouse, I love you, it reassures them of your love, doesn't it? But you do more than that, don't you? You, you also kiss, you hug, you touch. The, the declaration of your love takes a physical form. No husband or wife thinks the expression, the physical expression of love is redundant. The physical adds to the spoken words. We'd rightly be suspicious of a marriage, but it was all physical touch, had no conversation, or a marriage that was all talk and no physical affection. In the same way, Christianity, that is all word and no sacrament, no, no, none of the gift of the bread and the wine of communion or baptism, the other sacrament we have in our, in our religion, in our faith. Any way where we just remove that, we, we, we lessen this gift, this physical gift, we're missing something vital. Through the Lord's Supper and its physical nature, we're giving real assurance and joy as we take it, as we eat and as we drink. John Piper's written a superb book called When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy. And the back cover says we all want to experience true satisfaction in God. 
But the reality is we often struggle to find and hold on to true and lasting joy, even when we've embraced the good news of God's grace. I wonder if you recognise that feeling. I know I do. Whilst the book has lots in it to say, it does emphasise the gift of the Lord's Supper to help in our fight for joy. He says this as we participate in the cup and the bread by feasting on what the blood and body of Christ obtained for us when he died, especially the forgiveness of sins, the gift of righteousness and never ending personal fellowship with Christ and his father. That's why regular taking of the Lord's Supper is a great weapon in the fight for joy. It's a gift. God touches us in these physical gifts. It's a warm embrace. Let's remember that and we share it in a minute. Finally, we need to keep celebrating the Lord's Supper. We don't keep celebrating the Lord's Supper to add to our salvation anyway. The Catholic faith would say that it's wrong. It's not even panned around, but it's completely wrong. We don't add to our faith. We don't add to grace. But we're commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly. We do so every couple of weeks here. And it's a wonderful, as I said, tangible gift to us, a full bodied experience and as well as helping us look back and receive assurance it also helps us look forward brings us hope as we go and live out our faith now in the world whatever we've got to in our in our workplace in our homes in our office in our home office in our school wherever it god has us this week because you notice in that last verse what jesus said i tell you i will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when i drink it new with you in my father's kingdom what a promise it's why now it's just a foretaste it's why it is deliberately small it's an annoyingly small piece of bread and a shot of wine because it looks forward to a glorious feast we'll have with jesus in the new creation we will feast with god in perfect harmony again mull on that delight in that we're going to do that after we sing in a minute uh, we're going to look up we're going to look in look back look around and look ahead Five looks as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, remembering all the aspects of what we've looked at. But now uh, let me pause. Let's give you 30 seconds to respond. And then Emma's going to help us as we sing in response, as we look forward to celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Jesus was betrayed. He was broken. He was poured out for the forgiveness of sins of a new covenant people. Praise God. Take 30 seconds now.